If you will, take your Bibles and turn this time to the Old Testament, the book of Lamentations. It really is in there, right after Jeremiah, right before Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 1, we're going to begin a new series this morning. We're going to take a little pause from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll, hit, we'll get back with Luke in April, sometime in April, Lord willing. Uh, but Lamentations will be our focus for the next five to six weeks as we consider this series um, we've entitled The Grace of Lament. As we consider our time together this morning, I want to begin with prayer. Ask the Lord that he would give us grace as we understand his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. We're thankful that we can hear it, we can read it, that we can look to it, knowing that you have inspired these words for our good. Father, would you speak to us now? Would you open our eyes that we might hear from you, be changed for your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, most of us have visited some kind of memorial before. And there's plenty to choose from right here in our backyard, right? If you just go up to D.C., there's plenty of memorials that you can go to, whether it's the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial. You can go to various memorials here in D.C. and New York, the, the 9-11 memorials, and on and on we could go. There are many of those kinds of memorials. I remember in eighth grade, it was the first time we took a trip, or I was able to actually go to Washington, D.C., and here was a bunch of obnoxious eighth graders roaming the city, and I remember going to the Vietnam Memorial for the first time as an eighth grader and just remember beginning to see that, that wall of names and all these obnoxious eighth graders going down into that area to, to, to walk through the Vietnam Memorial. And I remember just the silence that overcame even a bunch of obnoxious eighth graders as you began to walk through that particular memorial and see name after name after name and realize just how many people perished in that conflict. In fact, memorials are constructed to help us look to the past, whether past victories or past tragedies, so that we don't forget the important lessons for the present and the future. The book of Lamentations is a memorial of, of sorts. It may not have a list of names inscribed on a wall. It may not get the spotlight that it deserves, but it's in that we all need to visit. And so we're going to do that for about five or six weeks. We're going to spend time here in this book. It's heavy. Lamentations is a lament. You think, well, what is a lament? What does it mean to lament? We could say various things about lament. We could say that to lament involves a cry of pain or expression of grief in some capacity. But when we consider lament in the Bible, we know that it is that, but it's more than that. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vrogop defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a grace God gives us, his people, to voice our sorrow, our complaints, our fears, our suffering, but in a way that makes, that, that makes way for hope. 
The Bible is full of lament. Like oftentimes we, we look past that. That's why, I want us, that's why I want us to go to Lamentations and just dwell here for a few weeks. The Bible is full of lament. You can go to the Psalms and see Psalms of lament. You can go to the book of Job and see a long personal experience of pain and tragedy and lament. Here we have an entire book of the Bible. Lamentations, an entire book of lament. In fact, it's five poems. These chapters are unlike other chapters you'll find in other books of the Bible. They're not necessarily um, one flowing out of the other. They're actually five different poems put in this book together. That's an expression of grief over the fall of Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure who wrote the book of Lamentations, although many people attribute it to Jeremiah. A lot of evidence that seemed to indicate he could very well be the writer, but others would say maybe not. The point being, we don't have the person named. The Lord inspired this book for our good, regardless of who it was that wrote it. The reason I referred to Lamentations as a memorial is because it's what it is. It is an expression of grief, of deep sorrow of deep pain over an event, a historical event, over the fall and destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. But more than just an expression of deep grief over the fall, it is a memorial. The Lord inspired this book for our good. In the book of Lamentations, it's as if we were being exhorted to never forget to not forget the hard and important lessons behind Jerusalem's downfall and demise. As I said, the context of this book has to do with the fall and destruction of Jerusalem around 586 BC, the hands of the Babylonians. God's people had been warned repeatedly, called to repentance by several prophets. And yet all of these warnings year after year after year, had fallen on deaf ears. So God did just as he said he would. He said, if you don't repent, I'm going to to send the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happens. The Babylonians invade. They come from the north. They stage a three-year siege against the city. Starvation began to take its toll on the inhabitants. Eventually, the city wall was breached The Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. They burned the temple. They plundered the city. They slaughtered many of the people in the city. And those who survived were taken in captivity as exiles and slaves to Babylon. This was not Jerusalem's greatest moment. In fact, it was the worst. So here we have God's city, God's temple laid in ruins, and God's people, those who were left, taken captive. And Lamentations is one deep cry of how can this be? How could this have happened? How could God allow his people, his city, his temple to be destroyed? What about all of the promises that he had made? This was Jerusalem. How could this happen? With that in mind, let's pick up in Lamentations chapter 1. I want to begin reading in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations. 
She who is a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword breathes in the house. It is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. There are four more chapters of that. 
quite heavy. You might wonder why five chapters of this heavy groaning and grieving over the destruction of Jerusalem, why would that be important for us today? What does that have to do with us? We weren't alive then. We weren't the rebellious ones in Jerusalem that turned their backs against the Lord. What does this have to do with us? We know that Jerusalem was eventually rebuilt. So why this book? Why today? Well, Lamentations teaches us many things, but at the end of the day, it reminds us in a raw, explicit fashion about two important things that we're gonna particularly look at this morning. One, the brokenness and sinfulness of the world and the holiness of God. This is really what you begin to see clashing here is is the brokenness of humanity and the holiness of God. It's a book full of calamity, full of suffering, pain, wrestling, complaining, weeping, groaning, grasping, but it's also a book of hope. While it does document the aftermath of Israel's darkest hour, listen, Lamentations is not the end of the story. And as you read this heavy, sorrow-filled, dark book, we have to keep that in mind that this is not the end. But yet it's quite instructive to us. And I think for that it's helpful. We too experience the stomach-churning pain of life in a broken world. Sometimes due to our own sinfulness, sometimes due to the reality of living in a sinful world. And we need to learn how to process that kind of pain in a way that understands that God is good and God is holy and this is not the end. No matter the pain that you endure, no matter the sorrows, the grief, the the difficulties that you endure in this life, it's not the end of the story. And I think Lamentations really is, is, is God's inspired way of reorienting our weary hearts so that we can see the faithfulness and goodness of God, even amidst the darkness. As we begin chapter one today, we are confronted with those truths, the brokenness of the world and the holiness of God. And as we walk through the calamity that Jerusalem experienced, we're gonna walk through it in three phases here in chapter one. We're gonna see the carnage of this calamity We're gonna see the cause of the calamity and the cry of calamity. There's a bunch of C's in there. The carnage, the cause, and the cry. And then after that, we're gonna see five lessons that we can take away. All in 30 minutes, I promise. Let's begin with the carnage of calamity. See that in verses one through seven. It's interesting that the writer here, Jeremiah or someone else, presents the city of Jerusalem as a weeping woman in the deepest depths of mourning and pain. And so you have the writer, the poet, we could say. He's writing, presenting the city of Jerusalem as a weeping woman. And so in the first 11 verses, he speaks of her in the third person. He's referring to her in that way. But in verses 12 through 22, he lets her speak for herself. Like I said earlier, the book of Lamentations 
compilation of five poems, not merely connected chapter by chapter, but you see these five poems as expressions of lament. The first one here in chapter one, it begins with how. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. It begins with this, this question. It's not only the first word of the book, in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually the title of the book, how. The idea behind that, it's not merely an, an explanation, or excuse me, an exclamation. It, it carries with it a question. It's as if, how, how could this have happened? How could this be? The writer looks on the devastated city and responds with baffled astonishment. What in the world has happened? This was Jerusalem. I mean, it was the Titanic, the Titanic city of its day. There was no way that it would be unsinkable. No way it could be destroyed. This was God's city, God's people, God's temple. We're talking about Jerusalem. And now it laid in ruins. It's gone. Look at how the writer describes the carnage through a series of reversals. You see it primarily in the first three verses, but it goes on. It's a city once full of people, now lonely. A city who was great, now a widow. A city who was a princess, now a slave. Roads once filled with pilgrims are now roads filled with mourning. The gates once bustling with activity, now desolate. It's priest grown. And all the while, her enemies are gloating, prospering. First chapter is 22 verses long, 22 verses of expressed sorrow and grief. It's interesting because the Hebrew alphabet contains 22 verses. And in fact, each verse begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic in Hebrew. It's as if the writer is saying that this suffering... This, that this is a message of suffering in its totality. From A to Z, if we were in English, from A to Z, you see the, 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 the reality of this suffering. This once glorious city now lies in utter ruin. Verse six, all her majesty has departed. Several features of this poem, chapter one, are striking. Five times we hear that there is no one to comfort her. Five times we hear the sound of groaning. The most repeated word in the chapter is the word all, 16 times. Every problem that Jerusalem faced is, an ex is expressed in terms of totality. They faced total oppression, total loss of property, total loss of worship, loss of sympathy from others, loss of everything. In fact, the greatest sense of loss seems to be the perceived loss of God's presence. This book goes on for five chapters like that. For five chapters, these expressions of grief and sorrow, this, the, the being confronted with the totality of loss, and not one time does God respond in this book. Not one time does God respond. Unlike Job, Job's similar but different. Similar in that Job expresses grief over the, the carnage of his own personal experience, not due to his own sin though. He was righteous and yet suffered 
We see that in the midst of all of the, what Job experienced, there is a dialogue back and forth with the Lord. There is no such dialogue here in Lamentations. There's even the statement in verse 5 that God is the one who's afflicted Jerusalem. Friends, it's important to understand that this book is not written merely as a historical account. There's a story behind all of this carnage. And I think that could be said for all of us, couldn't it? Behind all our sorrow, behind all our pain, behind all of our grief is a story. And whether it's the downfall, the, the sinful rebellion and downfall of a nation like Israel, or the suffering that you endure in your own life, what we see here is that the Lord in his grace and in his wisdom has provided us the grace of lament, enabling us to have a voice to express our sorrows, our grief, our pain, our suffering, all the while seeing that God is the one that can be and must be trusted. Lament enables us to voice our sorrows. And yet we are driven in the midst of those sorrows to hope in God yet again. You see, the hope in all of this carnage is that it would not be wasted. That it wouldn't be wasted. As deep as the pain was, as gut-wrenching of a scene this was, it's here to stand as a memorial to, to point to something greater. It's as if the Lord is using it for our benefit today and certainly for, for even the immediate benefit of those who had just seen their city destroyed. It's as if the Lord is saying, do not forget what happened here. Don't, don't lose sight of the carnage that took place in my city. It happened for a reason, which leads me to the second point, the cause of this calamity. And we pick up in verse eight. We've already seen a glimpse of the cause and a statement of the cause in verse five. It says the Lord afflicted her, Jerusalem, for the multitude of her transgressions. The point is further made in verse eight, Jerusalem sinned grievously. A good, a good summary of the message that the people of God had rejected is found in Jeremiah chapter two. So what had they done to get them to this point? Let me just read some, some verses out of Jeremiah chapter two to kind of paint a picture for you of the message that the Lord had given them and ultimately it was a message that they had rejected. In fact, one of their leaders at one point in time ripped up the scroll. Jeremiah chapter two, verse five, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where's the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? 
but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Verse 17. Have you not brought us have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now what you what what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. At their root problem, this was the reality. The fear of God was no longer in them. God's people had abandoned God in virtually every way possible. It's not as if they, they just sinned once or sinned a few times here and, and were repentant over it. It's as if they completely abandoned and rejected God, his, his commands and his promises. They were living as if he didn't even exist. And even though they had been warned repeatedly and even by the prophet given a very clear reflection of what would be, they still continued in their way. So what happened in Jerusalem was the inevitable result of sin, their own sin. They had no one to blame but themselves at this point. And the reason we see Babylon invading was because, yes, God sent them, but God sends them because of the rebellion of the people. If you look at verses 8 and 9, the way that this, the writer describes their sin is quite explicit. You see that in verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. She's being described as a whore. This is the city of Jerusalem. It's a picture of a deaf, obstinate, rebellious, idolatrous, disobedient people that knew better. Or at least they should have. They'd already seen this play out with the invasion of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. And yet they continued to harden their hearts against the Lord and it led to their ruin. Friends, if there's anything that Lamentations drives home, it is this truth, that sin always brings devastating consequences. I can't help but think that that's part of what the Lord wants us to feel from this memorial. He wants us, even today in 2020, to feel the weight of the problem of sin in the world, sin in our community, sin in our own lives. God's people at this point were suffering because they refused to repent. And God was willing to level, because he is a just God, he was willing to level his own city, completely destroy his own temple, and scatter his own people. It reveals to us just how devastating sin can be, but it also points to us just how holy God is. If you don't like this activity, which, to be honest, all of us, Wonder how could this have been? How could God do this? And it's because we don't fully recognize and realize the true holiness of God. 
this rebellion demanded God's justice. And listen, it's not as if the first thing that happened, he reacted. God is patient. He is generous with his patience. God is long-suffering. He's extremely generous in his restraint, but rebellion against his rule does have consequences if left alone. Now, I'm not saying, I'll pick up on this here in just a little bit, but I'm not saying that behind every negative experience you face is personal sin. So every bad thing that happens in your life, every sorrow that you have can be attributed to some personal sin. That's not what I'm saying. We need to realize that what I am saying is that behind every sorrow is the reality of sin in general. It's the reality of a broken world that's been impacted by sin. Listen, there would be no sorrow if there were, no sin, if there were not sin. There would not be the need to lament if something wasn't broken. So sin in some way has affected everything. Every grief, every sorrow, every pain, every disappointment, everything we feel that's messed up in life can be attributed in some way to the curse. It may not be a personal sin you've committed, therefore this, but it is the reality of life in a world that has gone wrong. The cause can always be traced back to the rebellion. But then you have the cry of calamity. You see that in verse 12. It's all the way, all the way through. But in verse 12, the, the tone, or the, not the tone, but the, the focus, the emphasis changes. It now becomes the, the weeping woman that speaks for herself. Already twice we see how the writer has cried out to God. It's as if referring into third person and then she can't help but speak couple of times already. Verse 9, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Verse 11, look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. So already she's cried out. And no response. So it's as if she now turns to those around her, those who pass by. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who have passed by? Do you not see what's going on? Do you not see my pain? Do you not see my sorrow? Do you not see what's happened? Verse 12, there's a shift where the writer moves from detailing the problem to crying out for mercy. Verses 12 through 13, she details just how painful this grief is and expresses an overwhelming sense of divine justice. You see that? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. Full recognition, a full recognition of the justice of God. The writer is not blaming God. The writer is simply recognizing what the Lord has done. Further in verses 15 through 17, there's a true sense of feeling the abandonment of God. The enemy has prevailed. There is no one 
to comfort. No comfort can be found anywhere. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing. Verse 15, the Lord rejected all my mighty men. He summoned an assembly against me to crush me, crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a wine press, the virgin daughter of Judah. It's the imagery there that you see. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit, my children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. But after all of that, you see just a a glimmer, just a hint. We could say of hope, but of reality. In the midst of all of this sorrow, in the midst of all of this pain, there's a bit of a turning point, point in verse 18. Notice what she says. After all of these complaints, after all these cries, she says, the Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. The Lord, has, he's done no wrong. He was right to do this. He had warned us time after time. after He had sent his prophets to us. He had shown us in great detail what would happen and we didn't listen. The Lord is in the right. He is just. For I have rebelled against his word. In the midst of all of this sorrow, there's the simple confession that the Lord was right for bringing this discipline upon his people. As devastating as it has been, the Lord was not wrong for acting in this way. And all of this made such an impact. You even see the cry for justice. Even though there's recognition that the Lord is right. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, verse 21, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You've brought the day you announced. God's faithfulness. You did what you said you were going to do. You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Do you see what's going on there? It's as if the writer recognizes We're in this situation and it's our fault. We have no one to blame but ourselves at this point. We see that the Lord is in the right. He he brought the day he announced. He did what he said he was going to do if we wouldn't repent and he, he did. And now, look at verse 21 again. You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. There seems to be a turn now and, and yet somewhat of a recognition and dependence upon God's word. Because if you go back to the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah prophesied and promised that the Babylonians would be held accountable for their invasion and attack upon the people of God. And so it's as if the, the writer now, after all of this carnage and chaos, finally, okay, clarity starts to happen. Lord, you did exactly like you said, but you, you, you brought your justice to bear upon your people. Would you, would you now do the same for your enemies, for our enemies, just like you promised? Because it's just a reminder that our cries to God ought to be always undergirded by promise. This lament, this plea for justice. 
It ends in verse 22, let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. It's a heavy chapter. It's a dark chapter. And if we're honest, we're not used to speaking in these kinds of terms at this length. One of the things that I think is just helpful to see as as dark and hard and heavy this is to read, even though you have all of these cries and these laments and these, these expressions of grief and pain and sorrow and no word back from God, these lamentations are still prayers. In the midst of all of the pain, in the midst of all of the sorrow, in the midst of all of the grief and turmoil and recognition of sin, there's still prayer. There's still an awareness that God exists and that he is true and I can trust him. Who else am I going to cry to? You see that in various places. Psalm 77 is a psalm of lament. Verse one and two, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. There's pain there. There's there's agony. There's there's frustration. There's grief. There's disappointment. There's, There's all of this, but yet there's a cry to God. As we wrap wrap up our time together in Lamentations 1, I want us to take away several important lessons from chapter 1. What are some takeaways for us? First takeaway is this. The sin is at the core of all our problems. Sin is the real problem. I don't want to oversimplify, nor do I want to confuse. So let me explain. All our sorrows, all our grief, all our pain and heartache can be traced back to sin. Again, to be clear, I don't mean every problem you face. Every negative experience you endure I'm not saying is a direct result of your personal sin that you lied, therefore you're, doing, you're having to endure this, or you were mean to someone, or you did whatever, and now you're experiencing this as a result of your personal specific sin. That could be the case. I don't want to say that that never happens because we bring consequences into our lives because of that. But what I am saying is that while everything that we experience negatively in this world can't be traced always back to personal sin, it is the result of sin, of brokenness. To quote Dark Cloud's Deep Mercy again, Mark Vrogrip said, every death, every war, every injustice, every loss, every hurt, and every tear owe their existence to sin. It has affected everything. Lamentations reminds us that underlying our lives is a foundational brokenness connected to the presence of sin in the world. It is the core of all of our problems. It may not be your personal sin, but the reality of sin is the core of every problem we face. We do not live in a perfect world. Why? Because sin exists. Sin hijacked the perfection that God created. And until we are in glory, until we are on the the new heavens and the new earth, until we experience that reality, this will be our reality. 
Number two, sin has devastating consequences. Jerusalem's downfall began in hard hearts. Its refusal to obey God's commands, its refusal to hear God's prophets, its refusal to repent, all of that had devastating consequences. Ultimately, death for many. That's what Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Death in the world exists because sin exists. But yet we often, I mean, we, we know this, we live in a culture that downplays and encourages sin. It, it, it doesn't even call sin, sin. And because that's the air we often breathe, it can be quite easy for you and for me to forget the devastating effects of sin. brings devastating impact to our lives personally, our families, our communities, our nation, the world. And lamentations should be a megaphone shouting to us, look what sin does. It's always devastating. Third lesson, brokenness is not simply personal. We often refer to our personal sin. When we think about sin, brokenness in the world, we often think about that in personal terms and we need to do that. My contention here is that we typically only do that. Sin has a far more sweeping impact than just your individual sin. Our collective rebellion against God surfaces in our corporate reality. It surfaces in our culture, in our families, in our communities, in the nations. Sin has impacted all aspects of life. It, 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 it certainly impacts you, but you belong to a family and your family belongs to a community and your community belongs to a state, your state belongs to a nation, your nation belongs to the nations and the world. So sin is much greater than just your personal brokenness, though it includes your personal sinfulness and brokenness. I think this book is a good reminder to us that we need not only to lament our own sin and pain, but we should lament the sin and pain of others. We should corporately lament. We should lament the sin that we commit together. I think it should help us pray more faithfully and intensely on behalf of others when we are aware of not just our personal brokenness, but the reality that brokenness is impacting much more than just us. Number four, fourth lesson, suffering brings clarity. Suffering brings clarity. Listen, if you're going to suffer, and we will, let it be for righteousness. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Right? Lamentations is not a call for us to avoid suffering at all costs. You can't. It's simply a warning to us not to suffer for the wrong foolish things. If you're gonna suffer, let it be for righteousness. Let it be for the glory and majesty of God and the advance of the gospel. Let it be for good things. If you're going to endure 
despairing situation, if you're going to endure, endure pain and suffering and hardship and, and you're going to be flooded with tears, let it be for righteousness. Let it not be the result of our own wrongdoing. Suffering brings clarity. Number five, grace is truly amazing. Friends, this is a heavy book. But as I said earlier, let's be reminded that in the midst of this book, this book is found in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is part of the revealed word of God. You have an Old and a New Testament. Let's be reminded that this is not the end of the story. Let's dive into here. Let's feel the weight and the darkness and the heaviness of what's here. Let's learn how to rightly express our sorrows and griefs and, and worries and fears and pain to God, learning to trust him again, even in the midst of our darkest moments. Let's do that, but let's remember as we're doing that, we, we can't do that right without remembering that this is not the end. Let's remember this is not the end of the story. Friends, you, you say, well, where do you see grace in this book? Where do you see Jesus? As the good news of Jesus is that God poured out the fullness of his divine justice and anger against our sin upon him. Oh, friends, think of the contrast you see between Jesus and Jerusalem. Like Jerusalem, Jesus suffered desertion by his friends, mockery from his enemies. Like Jerusalem, Jesus was stripped naked, publicly humiliated with no one to comfort him. Like Jerusalem, Jesus suffered at the hands of his enemies. Like Jerusalem, he became unclean, defiled by sin, not his own, but because God made him to be sin, who knew no sin for us. Like Jerusalem, Jesus experienced the soul-piercing abandonment of his father as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus too experienced a very similar rejection. Jesus experienced a similar sorrow. He experienced the silence of God also, but not because of his own sin. He experienced these things so that your sin and my sin could be forgiven. He experienced the curse and he took upon himself the divine justice of God. You know, it was many, 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 many years before the city would be rebuilt and the temple would be rebuilt. Remember what Jesus said, referring to himself? He said, destroy this temple and it'll be raised again in three days. There's a greater temple. There's a greater Jerusalem. It's found in King Jesus, where our hope in the midst of our darkest and most horrific of moments, that is where our hope must rest. Friends, when you read Lamentations, it should drive you to lament your sin. It should drive you to lament so many things. But it should also make you very thankful for God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning for 
this reminder and this memorial of sorts, this, this truth that we find here in the book of Lamentations. Father, it's, it's good that we can come here and spend time considering, even as heavy as this book is, as, as difficult maybe it is for some of us to, to hear. Lord, it's good that we, that we spend time here so that we not forget the carnage that sin brings. God, would you teach us in this book? Would you remind us that even through the darkness there is hope, that there is light, that there is promise of a greater and better day? Would you serve us in the way that you choose, Lord? Would you bring comfort? Would you bring correction? Would you bring encouragement? Would you bring hope? Would you bring everything that's needed this morning and throughout this series together, Lord, would you help us to see what we need to see, that we would be faithful in our lamenting to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.